This is They Create Worlds, episode 118, The Entire Video Game Industry, part one. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we are going to look at something that is massive, huge, spans multiple decades, is the culmination of us just doing years of research, spending lots of money, and according to some people, wasting a lot of time. Video games. All of them. That's right. Something we've never, ever done before in 117 episodes of this podcast. Talk about the history of video games. Never been done. Who would do that kind of thing? That's just <laughs> madness. So, yeah, of course, this is our big three. Heaven help us, please be three. Part podcast of the year. We do one of those big ones every year. This time, we thought it would be a good idea to just kind of do the history of everything because we're insane like that. Because obviously we do a lot of episodes, a lot of in-depth looks at this and that. We often allude to the big picture of video game history as we do that. We never really do something that just kind of encompasses that entire history of video games, mostly because that's impossible to do in two hours, or even the six hours that this is probably going to end up being. But we're going to do the best we can to do that, because it just kind of makes sense to have a big, overarching, contextual thing. You know, five years from now, I'll know more, and this entire episode will be wrong, and then we'll have to do our revised history of video games. But that's fine, because, you know, we do a three-parter every year, and we're going to run out. That'll give us (laughs) something to do five years down the line. (laughs) A few things here. First of all, welcome to our Twitch audience. We are live streaming this. Hello! I'm sure no one will be insane enough to follow this entire live recording, but we will hopefully have people popping in and out, be interacting with them. Not that that'll be heard on the final recording, but it'll be a good time, I hope, on that end. In terms of what these episodes are going to cover themselves, well, first of all, they're not going to cover everything. They can't. You know, I've written a nearly 600-page book just talking about the first decade of the video game industry, plus some prehistory stuff before that. Even then, you have to cut some stuff out. Obviously cannot cover everything in a six-hour podcast. If your favorite game, if your favorite moment, if your favorite part of the world just doesn't get in there, my apologies, it's impossible. Kind of the goal of what we're going to do here, what we're going to try to cover is the big, broad steps that took the video game industry to where it is today. What's big today and how the industry kind of naturally evolved in that direction. It is going to be an industry history. We're not really going to get into game creation too much. I mean, there are some big games that we may briefly talk about that. If you want more information on the games that really changed the world and why they changed the world... Well, we've got you covered because last year we did the top 100 influential video games of all time that was more focused on here are the games, here are the mechanics, here are the reasons these were big. This is going to be more of a look at how the industry developed, how the business developed, to a small extent how society developed around the industry. Now, just as a reminder, I'm not a real historian. I just play one on TV 
the social history aspects. I'm not a social historian. I do think I'm a pretty good expert at this point on the business of the video game industry. In the wider context, it might feel a little bit less focused. We do want to try to put a little bit of that broader context in as well to try to explain why video games are evolving the way they are uh, within society. We are going to go all the way from the very beginning to the very end, though I think a lot of the meat of it will really be 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. We'll kind of briefly catch up to the present, but it's, it's not even really possible to have a lot of context on what's going on today. That's kind of the roadmap. We'll probably, you know, run off the road into a ditch within the first five minutes. But that's okay, because <laughs> what is a rarity is we actually have an outline to follow. We haven't really had much in the way of notes, because Alex just does all of this off his head, which frankly amazes me. I do cram in advance. I mean, I don't do it completely from memory, and occasionally I have to look stuff up as we go. But yeah, usually there's not an outline to the episodes. We actually have one. Yes, I actually created an outline for this one. A topic this gigantic, if I didn't create an outline, we'd be in trouble. We'll probably deviate completely from the outline, but at least I can always go back to that if I feel like I'm missing something important. Always good. To start off with, we have the prehistory, the land before computers, the land before video games, the land where we went, I just want to do some fun stuff with military stuff and shoot things over there. <laughs> sure. So in order to have a context for video games, first, it's helpful to have a kind of very broad, very general overview of a definition of what kind of games we're going to cover. Ethan Johnson, one of the good friends of the show, who also does a lot of his own independent work, collaborated with a couple of people, myself included, on kind of a rough definition of video games that does a pretty good job of encompassing what we want to talk about. I mean, is it the general usage, the common usage definition? No. Will it ever be the common usage definition? Probably not. But it's a good framework for what we're doing, because if you're going to talk about a big, broad topic, you need to have some idea of what you're talking about. The kind of definition that works for what we're trying to do First of all, a video game contains electronic logic circuits. This excludes the whole realm of electromechanical games, the kind of coin-op games that were precursors to video games that the video game industry very much co-opted in its early days. You have to be powered by electronic logic circuits. We need to have a display. That display does not need to be a screen. It can be a teletype. It can be uh, just about anything where you're projecting some kind of image except that this display does need to be controlled by the electronic logic circuits. That means there's a direct relation to the game program, whether that program is in hardware or software, and the screen with that game program and those electric logics, electronic logic circuits being able to change the state of the program and can be defined arbitrarily. It needs to have the ability to manipulate the screen or the display to have multiple game states. If you're just turning something off and on, if you've got a projector going, because there were a lot of early electronic games that had projectors, if you're just turning that projector on and off or switching between two projectors, that doesn't work. You actually have to be able to define arbitrarily the uh, screen multiple different outcomes. So even a simple tic-tac-toe game is fine for this definition, because even if you're just turning on and off individual lights, like in uh, Birdie the Brain, an early computer program, 
than the fact that you can still have multiple states represented by those patterns of turned on and off lights. That counts. Be able to alter the state of the program and its display by means of interaction. So video games are interactive. You can't just be passively sitting back and watching a movie. You actually have to do something, even if it's just occasionally jiggling your joystick left or right in response to on-screen prompts like in Dragon Slayer. Be driven by goals, intrinsic or extrinsic, which constitute a state change in the program. One thing that uh, you can get caught up in with a definition like this, in fact, uh, Ethan did this in response to a video by uh, Ahoy, a wonderful video by Ahoy, which we'll, of course, now put in the show notes, about how you define a video game, is that you have to eliminate a DVD menu. Technically, a DVD menu, if you're moving stuff up and down with your remote, technically, you've got electronic logic circuits, you're changing the display, it can be defined arbitrarily, you're altering the state of the program through interactivity. We have to have actual goals. It has to be a game. Be driven by goals and have goals which can be accomplished using means inherently discernible by the machine's main output. It has to be a game. There has to be objectives. It doesn't have to be fun but it has to be a game. Exactly. So there's a quick and dirty definition of video games as we define them for the purpose of our work here today. Getting that all out of the way, let's finally dive into the actual history and get this started. Video games, of course, don't exist without electronics and without computers. This is why there are no video games or computer games before the middle of the 20th century. The real impetus and the real move towards electronic entertainment, or really electronic uh, capability in general, really sprung out of World War II. World War II was a war that was waged very much with science as much as it was waged with uh, boots on the ground. In fact, there's a very convincing argument to be made that. The science part of the war was important. I mean, you needed the armies there to stop each other from overrunning more territory, stop the Nazis or the Japanese from overrunning more territory. You had to have boots on the ground to retake the territory, but it was really the advance of technology that allowed the war to have the result that it did. Britain would have probably been completely overwhelmed early on in the war if it wasn't for the technology of radar helping them in the Battle of Britain. It was never perfect, but there was a lot of work done on it. And of course, the science behind the atomic bomb is a large part of what brought the war to its conclusion, at least in, in the manner that it was brought to conclusion. We won't get into deep historical World War II arguments about what if this happened, what if that happened, because... We're probably already over time, even with what I've said so far. Anywho, there were a lot of technological advances that happened in World War II, but the two that are really important to us is that advance of radar and then the advances that were being made in control systems. Radar is incredibly important to modern electronic entertainment. Really, that's when screen technology first got really refined. There were televisions. Television was invented. There were mechanical processes even as far back as the 19th century, but they didn't work very well. They weren't practical. Television, for practical purposes, was invented in the 1920s. It was made watchable by the end of the 1930s. The technology was still expensive. The technology was finicky. The screens were infinitesimally tiny. Definitely no uh, 65-inch screens back in 1939 at the World's Fair 
when RCA was debuting some of the earliest televisions. There was a lot of refinement that needed to be done in components and technology and manufacturing, just in cost reduction, in order to really make the television a practical form of mass market entertainment. And radar research during World War II was really what brought that about, because with radar, you need a screen, you need tubes, you need electronics driving the display. That's when a lot of that technology was figured out. It's really also when the first computer memory technology was figured out as well. And we're talking about the really early stuff that we won't go into in detail here, like mercury delay line memory and CRT memory. With radar, the real problem was, yeah, you could ping a radar signal off a location, and it's going to bounce off of everything that's there. Trees, large animals, rocks, etc. There's noise. You're trying to figure out what's coming towards you, the enemy that's coming towards you. You don't want to know where all the trees are. They had to come up with ways to differentiate moving objects, rapidly moving objects, from just background objects. The way they did that, the way they solved that, is by very briefly keeping a complete radar image in memory and then comparing the next radar ping, the next radar bounce, with the previous radar bounce stored in memory, and then anything that appears in the exact same location in both is filtered out of the final display that the radar operator actually sees. It's kind of the beginning of sophisticated displays. It's kind of the beginning of computer memory in radar. The other side of this that is very important is control systems. Now, computers were largely invented in response to the needs of World War II. There had been a couple of computers before World War II. I'm not saying that there had never been a computer. This is not a history of computing podcast. So I'm not going to go into that kind of detail, obviously. We have already done a few episodes on it anyway. Absolutely. For our purposes and the purposes of this podcast, computers really come out of World War II. The primary paradigm, of course, in the early days of computing was batch processing, where you line up a bunch of calculations in a row, feed them all in at the same time, whether that's on magnetic tape or paper tape or punched cards or whatever method you're using. And then it performs all of those calculations, functions in sequence. Then you get a final result at the end. Heaven help you if you mispunched one of your cards or dropped them all on the way to the computer lab and got them out of order. That's obviously not going to be the basis for a computer game industry, an electronic game industry, a video game industry. It was barely anything to solve a math problem. (laughs) Exactly. This was still a predominant mode of computation for several decades. For our purposes, what you really needed was a paradigm shift over to real-time systems. So if there's an inflection point for everything that is to come in electronic games, it is really the Whirlwind computer, which was created at MIT in the Lincoln Labs. Whirlwind, we won't go into huge detail, but it started as a flight simulator. It was going to be a universal flight trainer that could model any flight conditions, any model of aircraft by just flipping a few switches rather than having to do custom builds for every type of airplane in existence. It started as an analog computer. It soon became apparent that an analog computer, which means that instead of using numbers ones and zeros to simulate things, it actually has to use actual electromechanical phenomenon to simulate things, was not going to be fast enough to do this. And so they had to come up with a real-time electronic digital system 
in order to make this work. The flight simulator went way over budget and was going to be canceled most likely, but then after the war, when the Soviets developed an atomic bomb in 1949 after the Americans did, then there was a great necessity to have an early warning system that would blanket the entire United States to stop a long-range Soviet bomber because we're in the days before we have ICBMs or even nuclear submarines. So at this point, an attack would come from a long-range bomber coming from Western Russia over Alaska and Canada. We needed an early warning system that would blanket the entire nation. And so that's where you get the need for real-time computing. That's where you get a computer that can actually update in real time and respond instantaneously to input. So a lot of what we think of today as computing really originated with Whirlwind. The idea that you are typing on a keyboard and you are immediately seeing on a screen a change in the state of the computer based on what you just typed with that keyboard. That comes from Whirlwind and from the Sage defense system that sprang from Whirlwind. The idea that you're interacting directly with objects on a screen with some kind of pointer, that also comes from Whirlwind. There was no mouse at that time. They were using light pins. That whole idea comes from Whirlwind. Even the idea of computers communicating with each other remotely through use of a modem comes from Whirlwind. The modem was invented by AT&T and by its uh, Bell Labs research arm, but it was first deployed, or at least first deployed in a meaningful way, in the Sage system. So this is really the beginning of the computing environment that can be used for games. But of course, it's a huge command and control system that takes up half an acre of space and is super expensive and needs air conditioning and all of that. You're not really doing games on it, really, but it's the beginning of it. Though I should say that the first thing that could be considered a game, what we right now think is the first thing you can consider an electronic game, it's important not to get too caught up in firsts because there's always something weird and obscure out there. The earliest thing that we know of right now that could even remotely be considered an electronic game based on our definition is a bouncing ball program that was made sometime in the 1951-1952 time period in which a ball appears at the top of the screen and bounces around until it loses momentum and then stops. This was something that was just not possible on previous computers. It seems so simple now, and bouncing ball programs have, of course, been used as demos for a lot of different computers, most famously probably for the Amiga when the Amiga debuted. But this was the very first bouncing ball. It was a real-time application that could be altered by the user, though only at the start. You would set the parameters of how that ball was going to start its bounce, and then the, the computer took over from there. A little later on, it was modified so that there was actually a hole in the floor that the ball would finally disappear into. And that's when it took on a game persona because the people in the lab started fiddling around with that and playing a game where they would challenge each other to get the ball in the hole with as few bounces as possible. I've already probably gone into way too much detail. The way this whole thing is going to work is I'm going to go into super detail on the first few things, look at the time, completely panic, rush through the next 50 things, and then be like, oh, now I have time again, and then get detailed at the end again. I'm resigned to that fate. The other important thing about Whirlwind is Whirlwind was a gigantic command and control system. So even though Whirlwind pioneered this entire concept of real-time computing, the type of real-time computing that Whirlwind did still wasn't in any way appropriate to doing a computer game or an electronic game. Because this was all about lots of people sitting at a gigantic computer and just taking in input 
and responding to input as it's controlling something gigantic, in this case, a whole defense system. You needed kind of an idea of personalizing real-time computer use as well. That's really where the importance of Ken Olson and Wes Clark, who were both at Lincoln Labs and both working with Whirlwind and with Sage, who came up with the idea of, okay, now we've got a system that we can respond to in real time. Why don't we adapt this so that it's useful in a laboratory setting where a scientist or an engineer can work one-on-one with that computer and interact with it in real time and get immediate results as they're doing their work? At this point, you get the whole concept of a small transistorized real-time computer. Now, that won't gain the name mini-computer yet for several years. The PDP-1 is sometimes in shorthand referred to as a mini-computer, but technically it's really not, even though it is much smaller and much cheaper than a giant mainframe, batch processing mainframe, or a giant command and control system, because it only costs around $120,000 rather than costing millions of dollars. Now, we have to remember that is $120,000 in 1960s money, so that's still a heck of a lot. But it's not millions in 1960s money, so we've made progress. It's that paradigm shift that Ken Olson and Wes Clark and uh, Ben Gurley, who actually designed the PDP-1, it's that paradigm shift that these folks made that created an environment where we could have these kinds of games. So there were experiments within the military-industrial complex in the 50s, people that had access to big computers, people that were doing serious work usually for the government, often in a military capacity at think tanks like the Rand Corporation. They were making war games. They were making simple AI programs. They were doing chess routines. They were doing this kind of stuff. The real ground zero for the start of something that could turn into an entertainment industry as opposed to let's just research how some of this stuff works, it really does start with Space War. If there is another inflection point, I know I already called Whirlwind's creation an inflection point, but if there's another inflection point for the real start of electronic entertainment, it's Space War. Of course you need two inflection points. That's the only way you can have a round circle or at least a lens or you can focus in on the topic. (laughs) There you go. Two inflection points to focus in on the topic. I like that. There you go. Space War is really the beginning of anything. And it, of course, comes out of MIT. And the real paradigm shift here and the real thing that makes this possible is that when you have a small interactive computer like the PDP-1, you can do research with it faster. It's not going to necessarily be in use 24-7, but you have to keep it turned on 24-7 because back in those days... Powering a computer on and off was a very fraught and very scary and very power-consuming, tech-consuming process. You really never wanted to shut a computer off back in those days, except when you had to to take it offline for maintenance or whatever. A computer like the PDP-1 or a batch processing mainframe is going to be running all the time. But a computer like the PDP-1 that isn't running big, complex calculations all the time that's being used on a more ad hoc basis for individual research projects as they come up is not going to be in use all the time like a batch processing mainframe would be. This created an opportunity for students, for employees, and quite simply for just hangers-on to interact with the computer and use that computer in a way that wasn't tied to serious work. 
So the first generation of computer programmers and operators, they were using these computers for serious work, and they couldn't really conceive of using it for anything else except for real one-off kind of demonstrations like Higginbotham's Tennis for Two. Higginbotham may put together a tennis program for an open house, but he's not going to keep a game together and keep a game running all the time. He used it one fall, he used it the next fall, he dismantled it. Now we have a computer that's going to be up all the time, but that people can co-opt for games. And even though the professors and the researchers are probably not going to be interested in that, these people have slave labor. I mean, they have graduate students that have the time and have the inclination to play around with these computers a little bit. That's where you get the culture around the PDP-1 and around MIT of the so-called hacker culture, where these people that are interested in technology, that are interested in modifying technology, many of them associated with the Tech Model Railroad Club and the electronics involved in that, discover the computer and are like, this is something we can have fun with. And people at the university are like, okay, fine, have fun with that. This goes back to Whirlwind, too, because the person that decided to do this was Jack Dennis, who had worked on Whirlwind as a student, who loved going in when no one was on the computer and doing his own programming, and thought people doing their own programming was valuable. To make a long story short, way too late, Jack Dennis allows people on the computer, people get interested in using the computer, and out of this comes Space War. We have a whole episode on Space War, so I won't talk about it any more than that. I've already talked about it too much as it is. That's the main paradigm shift, is that you have a real-time computer that is geared towards more personal use, that's going to be on all the time but won't be in use all the time. That's how you get an environment where you can actually have a game. Space War, of course, is incredibly influential because it spreads. It's not just that it's the first kind of real fun entertainment always or semi-always available game in a single location. It spreads around the country. It is, of course, the direct influence on the beginning of the video game industry because Nolan Bushnell sees it at the Stanford AI lab where Steve Russell brought it. Yes, he saw it at Stanford. We won't get into uh, that whole debate, but I am 100% convinced he did not see it at the University of Utah, and we have other episodes to cover that. That's how we get the transition. You have something that can appear everywhere. Then you have time-sharing developed, which we'll go into more detail later, which allows lots of programs to be run at once. In Space Wars early days, you just had to be playing it when nothing else was going on. Then time-sharing comes along, allowing multiple users to use the computer at the same time. At that point, you can play Space War even while other things are going on. This is what opens up computing as to something that can be done recreationally a lot of the time, even if it's only being done recreationally in computer labs. Well, yes, I suppose it's technically 99.9%. We as historians should never be irresponsible enough to say that we're 100% anything. Space War begats computer space, and computer space begats the idea that you can play these games outside of a closed computer lab that is accessible by only a limited number of people, and you can have something that could potentially become a mass market entertainment. Of course, at this point, computer technology even really stripped down computer technology, like the type that Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney used in computer space, is still very expensive. This is not something that can be 
at this juncture a home entertainment product and be it in any way interesting. Sorry, Ralph Bear. Kudos for your invention. But Bushnell has a point when he says it's just not that interesting. I'm sorry. You couldn't really do something interesting in the home at this point. But of course, fortuitously, there was already a mass market widespread, a commercial entertainment arena into which something like this could be placed. And that was the coin-operated amusement industry. We've done a whole episode on that, of course. The whole point of this is not to dwell. It's going to kill me not dwelling over this whole thing. I'll feel like so much has been left out, but we'll get through this together. You have to make all those shout-outs to previous episodes that cover all this. Jeffrey, myself, and Twitch chat, we'll get through this together. It'll be group therapy. It'll be great, as Alex has a nervous breakdown because he didn't cover something. The coin-operated amusement industry, at this point, we kind of have to define briefly what that was. Of course, it's all about consumption of short experiences that are activated by inserting a coin. For a while, that was a penny or a nickel. In the 50s, it became a dime. By this period of time, it's become a quarter, though a dime play mentality still kind of exists a little bit. Pinball is still two plays for 25 cents, for instance. You insert a quarter, you get 60 to 90 seconds of entertainment, and you'd be able to have an experience that you couldn't have anywhere else, often geared around sights or sounds as much as around games, though by the 1970s it had mostly settled into games. It was a cheap form of entertainment, so it's always something that had a connotation of being lower class. It's usually things that people of less means can't afford, people of more means can't afford. It started with phonographs because and the average person couldn't afford a phonograph. It moved to peep shows because the average person couldn't go to the theater. At this time, we're talking stage theater. We're not talking movie theaters. Then it moved on to elaborate entertainment experiences that were just impossible in the home with some simulation elements mixed in, like holding a light gun and shooting at a target or sitting down at a steering wheel and driving a toy car, that kind of thing. By the 1970s, the industry was in a lot of decline. There'd been consolidation. Before World War II, there were a lot of operators and jobbers all around the country running this stuff, and games were thriving. After the war, games were starting to fall by the wayside because the population was dispersing, and you could no longer have these big inner-city arcades that everyone was going through that had a lot of turnover. At the same time, you had the jukebox still kind of holding primacy in the recording industry. So you had a consolidation where basically coin-operated amusements became subservient to the jukebox industry. What this meant that the people operating jukebox routes were the same people operating the coin-operated games. Instead of big arcades, you still had a few inner-city arcades that were out there, You mostly had games appearing in the same locations that jukeboxes were appearing in, and that meant primarily bars and taverns. You had a few people that were getting into other locations like discount stores or bowling alleys, roller rinks, as kind of appendages to that, but you were talking mostly a bar and tavern trade. You were talking about most places just having one or two pinball machines or one or two shuffle alleys if they were in a place where pinball was illegal, which is a lot of places at that time, then having a jukebox, having maybe a coin-operated pool table or two, and then a cigarette vending machine, which was the one type of vending machine 
that the jukebox operators operated. They didn't do the soda machines and snack machines. That was a whole different industry. There was this existing infrastructure that could take a more expensive product and commoditize it 60 to 90 seconds at a time. That's how computer space and that's how video games were introduced into the world. But they were introduced in a very particular context because it really was a bar and tavern trade, which meant that you could not have anything too complicated because you're talking about a situation where people are having drinks, probably having a lot of drinks, and they're trying to socialize, they're trying to meet other people oftentimes, and they are not there to figure out a complicated game. This is why computer space failed. There's been a strange movement, and I'm not sure why, by a couple of people in academia to say that when Nolan Bushnell is talking about how the patron at the beer bar couldn't handle computer space or couldn't understand computer space, that he's somehow being classist and somehow saying, well, those dumb hicks in the beer bar had no idea what they were doing because they're stupid. It's not a class thing. Now, it does happen that the environment was working class bars. That's kind of the way it was because coin-operated amusements, it's a cheaper form of entertainment. It's the kind of entertainment for people that don't necessarily have a lot of money. These weren't showing up in cocktail lounges in high-class bars where people that were a little better off were around. So there is a class element to early video games in that sense. You're looking primarily at working-class people or at students, especially in areas around, say, Stanford. So there is a class element to it in that, but it's not that poor working-class slobs couldn't handle it. It's that a complicated product is not a good fit for a bar. Video games get more complex later. Video games get very complex later, and people of all walks of life play them later. But at that point, the video game has spread to other venues. It has spread to the shopping mall arcade. It doesn't matter what your income level is or your education level is. If you're a working stiff or a white-collar big shot or a student or a stay-at-home mom or whatever you are, it's the venue that matters. A beer bar is not the place for complex entertainment. A shopping mall arcade is, because if you're going to a shopping mall arcade, you're specifically going to be challenged by the machine. Computer space is a failure because it's a bar industry. The shopping mall arcade, for all intents and purposes, does not exist in 1971. The first few have started to appear, but it's not widespread. And this is why we needed to go back to the drawing board, and video games had to start out very simple. This is, of course, where Ralph Baer does play a very big role, because Ralph Baer is the first person to bring video games into the home. Because he had to keep the technology cheap, he had to do something very simple. He had spot-generating hardware that could only display three dots and a line of varying height. That's all the technology he could put in. While his team is working on this, they're coming up empty on how to make this fun. He and his technician, Bill Harrison, they've done some chase games where dots are pursuing each other. They've done some target shooting games where you shoot the dot with a light gun that are okay. They're not terrible, but you can't include the light gun with the basic system just because, again, the expense. They create the light gun as an add-on. They do a pumping game where you're just furiously pressing a button to raise the level of the dot to simulate like a bucket filling. That's just terribly boring. That's so boring it doesn't even make it into the final product. Then Bill Rush comes up with the idea, well, we've got two dots on the screen. What if we put a third dot on there? 
and make that machine controlled. Because at the time, they were thinking about player elements. So you had two players. That's really all they could do. So you had two dots. Bill Rush had the breakthrough. We can have dots that are not players. Let's put a third dot up there, and let's play table tennis. You get the first concept that really works in both being simple and cheap. You don't need a lot of elements to do that. It's intuitive, easy to pick up, easy to understand, but it can be fun to play under the right circumstances. The Brown Box team, the Magnavox Odyssey team, creates a table tennis game, as well as a lot of others. Nolan Bushnell sees this table tennis game when the Odyssey is being demoed. Then Al Alcorn at the newly founded Atari turns this into something more sophisticated and more fun because with coin-operated hardware, you can do a little more with it. The brilliance of Pong and the reason it kind of launches the whole industry is you can stick it in a bar. People will understand it right away. It has a single control. Two people can challenge each other and have fun with it. That's what really makes video games take off. They used to say back in the early days that the best games were simple games with just a single controller because you could control the game with one hand and hold your beer in the other hand. That's really what you needed in the early days because it was a bar market. So there was the Magnavox Odyssey. The Odyssey was really not very successful in its early days, though. For the purposes of this grand overview, the importance of the Odyssey is that it leads to Pong. Pong is something that's simple, easy to understand, can be played in bars, can be understood even when you're drunk off your gourd, and people can have a good time with. This really establishes video games in this industry. It came along at a time that was very important within the industry. If it had come along a little sooner, it might not have caught on in the same way that it did. But it actually happened to come along in a period of coin-op expansion and coin-op legitimization. The coin-op industry for a long time had been plagued by the gambling element. Because back in these times, the amusement industry, which we're talking about pinball, shuffle alley, target shooting games, driving games, etc., and the gaming industry, which we're talking about slot machines and gambling machines, were very intermixed, were very inbred, and there was lots of crossover because games of amusement were often modified into games of chance. There was this inextricable link in the public mind between coin-operated amusements, gambling, and organized crime. The fact that the jukebox operators were largely doing this cash-only business in working-class, lowbrow areas increased this stigmatization, this idea that coin-op is low-class, lowbrow, dirty, organized crime, gambling, bad, not in our community, which is why a lot of major cities like New York and Los Angeles banned pinball. Even Chicago banned pinball. Which is kind of funny considering that's where they came from. Yeah, exactly. That's where the industry was centered, was in Chicago. There was this stigma attached to it. That stigma was starting to change in the late 1960s, though. Because you had a new wave of more sophisticated games coming in. We have to give Bill Nutting a lot of credit here. You know, Bill Nutting in video game history often just gets a bad rap. The founder of Nutting Associates that produced Computer Space. Because in the context of video games, he's usually just portrayed as 
And then this small California company, Nutting Associates, decided to take a chance on the game. They made a few, and then it flopped, and then we never hear from Nutting again. From a video game perspective, there is perhaps a little bit of truth to that, but we have to understand that Nutting got into the business with the game Computer Quiz in 1966-67, which was adapted from the earlier Knowledge Computer from uh, 64, which was probably adapted from an even earlier quiz game made in Detroit in 1946 called Telequiz. Computer Quiz came along in the late 1960s. It felt like a more sophisticated product. It felt like an educational product. It felt like a legitimate product. It felt like something that had value beyond gambling. It felt like a cleaner product. It got into new venues. It got into transportation depots, bus and rail. It got into department and discount stores, you know, maybe at the front door. It got into large apartment complexes. It got into student unions. Colleges were often hesitant to put pinballs in because of the gambling stigma. It opened up new venues. Then a new wave of games from Japan that were more realistic and were based on primarily things like target shooting and driving, which were completely divorced from the gambling element entirely, kind of followed in their wake. So there was a technological renaissance going on in coin-op. There was a gradual expansion of coin-op into new, slightly more respectable venues. It was right in this period that Pong hit. Pong felt like the continuation of this legitimization. First, we had these elaborate electromechanical shooting and driving games. Now we have this elaborate video game. At this time, computers were really associated with the pioneering leading edge of human achievement and human technology. We have to remember that the space race had just concluded in 1969. There was this real awakening to the idea of futuristic technology, of science, of exploration across the entirety of America. I mean, astronauts became heroes. Young kids were drinking Tang because that's what the astronauts drank. World's Fairs, like the 1964 World's Fair in New York, were really focused on the world of tomorrow and a science fiction future. Computers and screens and video screens were a part of this romanticization of science that was occurring in this period in American society. When you saw something that felt futuristic like Pong, or even like computer space, even though computer space was a failure, it had that real sexy fiberglass cabinet that just looked so futuristic. When you saw these machines, this looked like not the smoke-filled pool hall, not the smoke-filled gambling hall, not the shady bar where you never want your kids to get anywhere near. This felt like modern technology, modern entertainment for the modern world. It really helped legitimize the entire idea of coin-operated entertainment, which for so long had been lost in the shadows of gambling. Pong creates a revolution, but it's a short-lived revolution. It distributes broadly. It's cloned broadly. It gets in every nook and cranny of society, and it also 
opens new venues that hadn't been available to coin-operated games generally before, like high-end cocktail lounges and uh, lobbies of high-end hotels and things like that. The other side of the coin-op industry is that the coin-op industry is very faddish. After pinball was kind of pushed to the margins of the industry, which was happening throughout the 30s, 40s, and 50s with uh, regulation. Pinball's still very popular. There's still lots of pinball machines coming out, but it's no longer able to stand at the center. The industry became known for a faddish mentality where you would introduce the latest, greatest thing, whether that be shuffle alleys or bumper pool or the audiovisual driving games, the realistic games. Someone would put something like that out. There would be a lot of copycats of that product. Then the whole market would kind of rise, 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 and then it would fall as the next big thing came on. It's, it's a novelty category. It's always been based on novelties from the 19th century when it first came about. So Pong was a success, but Pong rose really high really fast as a dozen or so companies got in and started making them. Then it fell really fast because ball and paddle was very simplistic. They made modifications. There were hockey games, basketball games, elimination where you're where four players are guarding corners. You know, there were a lot of variants on this, but it couldn't progress too far. TV games were really seen by the larger industry as ball and paddle games. Most of the industry was unable to break out, no pun intended, from that mentality because the existing companies were used to being focused on a single concept, taking that concept as far as it could go and then moving on to the next thing. There wasn't the imagination or oftentimes, quite frankly, the technical skill to move beyond ball and paddle video for the majority of the industry. So it rose up. It got big, and then it collapsed, kind of in a very short period of time. Pong did not really launch the video game industry or even the coin-op video game industry, but it did help in this process of legitimization. It made it the mainstream thing. Exactly, and that in itself was very important because it's in the wake of Pong and in the wake of these video games that you start to get the move into the shopping malls. Of course, Jules Millman, the founder of Aladdin's Castle, is the person that was most important to this. He was not the only one that was founding arcades and shopping malls, but Aladdin's Castle became the biggest one, and he was kind of the first one that had the idea, well, why don't we clean this up? Because oftentimes these inner-city arcades or these games and bars, no one's really watching them, no attendant is there to really enforce the rules— so there's drinking, there's smoking, you have gangs of delinquents hanging out. Some of this is stereotype, obviously. It's not that every single location was this den of iniquity, but the perception of arcades as a den of iniquity was largely due to the lack of care in observing public behavior and maintaining the rules of the space. So because they had these reputations as being dirty and unwatched and a haven for delinquents— Respectable businesses just didn't want them around. Shopping malls, which at that time were the height of respectable American business, did not want them around. Jules Millman was able to change that by saying, let's put very strict rules in about eating, drinking, smoking. Let's make sure that we have enough attendance on site that they can always keep an eye on what's going on and can enforce the rules. Let's keep the space clean. He had trouble getting people to accept any of this at first, but 
happened upon a mall that wasn't doing well, that was desperate enough to try it out. It worked out. Everyone was happy. Other Chicago area shopping malls, because he was based in the Chicago area, saw this and were like, okay, that's working. We'll do this too. And it kind of spread out from there. That's where you get the transition, as I was talking about earlier, to the concept of the shopping mall arcade, a place where it feels okay to come and just enjoy the amusements and not have a stigma of gambling, not have a stigma of drinking, not have a stigma of smoking, and not have a stigma of delinquency. Obviously, as video games explode in popularity later, all of those same accusations will start catching up again. So we're going to have that same cycle where it's like, well, bullies are beating up weak kids for their lunch money so they can have quarters to go skip school and play in the arcades and they're smoking around the back and it's just terrible. There's a brief period here where the shopping mall arcade becomes desirable, becomes respectable, and even becomes a place where parents can feel safe dropping off their children to play some games while they go off and do their shopping. Now you have a venue to create a true entertainment industry. In the bars, you were never going to get beyond really simple concepts. The shopping mall arcade that Pong helps legitimize, that video games help legitimize, gives you a space to create an entertainment industry. At this point, what we need to really grow the industry, though, is we need the technology to improve. That's really where the whole advance in the semiconductor industry gets into it. The semiconductor industry is something else that really grows out of the military-industrial complex. In the, the days of World War II and Korea and the space race, these three things kind of happen, boom, boom, boom. You have World War II, which greatly increases government R&D spending. Government R&D spending immediately after the war comes back down. The Korean War reignites government R&D spending again. That goes up, up, up until that war ends. Then you have one final lull, and then Sputnik happens, and everybody panics about the uh, technological arms race with the Soviet Union, particularly as it pertains to space. Now you have government spending really skyrocketing. You have DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA at the time, I suppose. They didn't put the defense on it yet. You had ARPA. You had NASA, of course, that is doing all sorts of work, and you have this real exploration of technology. At this time, they were doing practical research. They were trying to build better guided missiles and better lunar modules and all of this. This was also a period where there was just a lot of pie-in-the-sky, non-applied general research into any technology that looks useful because Congress panicked so much, the government panicked so much, that they were willing to spend lots of money on just about anything related to researching this kind of thing. That changes, and we'll talk about this transition later, that changes with the end of the Vietnam War, because the Vietnam War serves as a real disillusioning moment in the government's will to fund big, expensive projects. The space race is over by that point. That's one big thing that's done. Then there's just a broader disillusionment with letting the government spend too much money that comes out of the very wasteful, from a spending perspective, Vietnam War. Right now, we're in the real blue sky period of research. You get the government investing in electronics technology 
quite a bit in the late 50s and the early 60s to develop transistors, integrated circuits, the kinds of things that are needed in guided missiles and in computers for things like the space program especially. Once all of those companies like Texas Instrument and Fairchild really establish themselves within the realm of military research and are bringing in a lot of money from these military contracts, then they try to turn around and commoditize silicon, commoditize electronics. Really, Texas Instrument was the initial leader in this with coming up with something that could be used by the general public that would spur increased production of transistors and then spur an increase in purchases of their product. They come up with the transistor radio. The first transistor radio is really not that useful, the one that they first come up with in the 50s, but just the idea of being able to carry around a radio with you is so powerful in the public mind that the transistor radio just takes off as a product. Then in the 60s, to push integrated circuits, you get calculators coming in, both desktop and handheld calculators, in order to drive adoption of integrated circuits. This is taking the technology that had been created for the government and then turning it into a mass commodity. Texas Instruments takes the lead there, but Fairchild and the National Semiconductor also become very big in this because there's a a manufacturing guru named Charlie Spork who starts at Fairchild and then goes to National Semiconductor and is instrumental in changing the way transistors and integrated circuits are manufactured so that you can do true mass market production and turn this into a consumer product. What does all of this mean for video games? What this means for video games is that by the mid-1970s, electronic components have become cheap enough that you can start commoditizing them both in the arcade setting and in the home setting. When Ralph Baer is doing the brown box that becomes the Magnavox Odyssey in the 1960s, he is limited in what he can do to that basic dot generation because the technology is just too expensive to commoditize and to bring into the home. Even when Al Alcorn and Nolan Bushnell are doing Pong and Atari, they can get a little more performance out of the technology because they're in a commercial setting, an arcade setting, where something can cost $1,000 or more. But they're still limited in what they can do. They can't do much with graphics. They can't do much with all of that non-arbitrary changing game state we were talking about because there's only so many objects that can be moving around only so many shapes those objects can take. There's only so many variables you can bring into the game. Now that we have commoditized integrated circuits, we're getting to the point where we can take the next step. Driving and shooting games are very popular in the arcade, and they have gotten very sophisticated. Games like Periscope and Missile and Speedway. The problem with these games is they use relays, they use steppers, They use counters. They use all of these finicky mechanical parts. And mechanical parts break down. They break all the time. So just as the coin-operated game is reaching the apex of its sophistication in the electromechanical age, it's also reaching the limits of its capability to work properly, quite frankly. 
Solid State provides the solution to that. Solid State allows you to just do all of this through beautiful logic gates and those beautiful ones and zeros of computer code once we get to the point that we're doing things in software. So that saves us from the maintenance issue. You get a pivot very quickly away from the ball and paddle stuff to co-opting the audiovisual or realistic games, as they called these category of games in the trades, that were already being done in electromechanical. So that's why the next wave that you see is things like Speed Race from Taito or Grand Track 10 from Atari or Gunfight from Midway or Tank from Atari. You have these games where you have two players dueling each other. You don't really have much in the way of shooting gallery games yet because objects on the screen is a problem, but you can at least have two players dueling each other on the screen. Or you can have players driving around the screen and competing in that way. This slots in very nicely with what's already going on in coin-operated games, so it's familiar to distributors and operators. It's something they can understand and will have less resistance to stalking. They'll also love it because they can get some of the same effect that they were getting out of these big elaborate machines without them breaking down all the time. Now, in some ways, those big EM machines were more impressive graphically and gameplay-wise than what the early video games could do, but that cost savings is significant enough that it's still worth making this transition. At first, this is a limited move because even video games, even though they don't have the problems of all of the electromechanical hardware, when you're doing this all in transistor-to-transistor logic, to get too much happening on the screen at once still takes a lot of silicon. It still takes a lot of hardware because games at this time are entirely done in hardware. There is no software component to it. The more sophisticated your game gets, the more transistors and integrated circuits you need, the more transistors and integrated circuits you need, the bigger the board you need. The bigger the board you need, the more likely you are going to create something that is more fragile. That takes us to our five-hour-long episode on Ramtech Baseball (laughs) that I know people in chat were looking forward to. In seriousness, I do have to bring up Ramtech Baseball quickly because this provides a good example of that. Ramtech Baseball was one of the first games to have more complex graphical elements on the screen. It had on-screen representations of players. It had more physics going on because you're pitching the ball and the ball can move around a little bit. It was more sophisticated than the ball and paddle games, even though just barely. Because of that, it needed two circuit boards. Two circuit boards had to be joined together. Ramtech used a wooden frame to do that, a wooden housing. And it turned out the wooden housing was really, really flimsy. And it broke. The first run of the game was a disaster. They had to go out and replace all the housings. That's an example of a problem that you're getting into as games get more sophisticated in hardware. Another good example of this is Atari did a couple of really massive multiplayer games in the mid-70s, Indy uh, 800 being the big one, an eight-player driving game. In Indy 800, you had eight players racing at once. Indy 800 was, for all intents and purposes, from a design perspective, it was essentially eight racing games combined into one, all interacting with each other. That meant that that game had eight circuit boards. They literally needed one circuit board for each player. This cabinet was gigantic. I mean, it had to be gigantic in part just to fit eight people around it. 
but it was also gigantic because they had eight circuit boards. And the more circuit boards you have, the more chance of failure there is. Very quickly, even as video pivots into these kind of replacing these electromechanical novelty games, they very quickly start running into the exact same problem that these electromechanical novelty games themselves ran into, which is service headaches of all types. Hardware wasn't going to be the answer. Electronics were clearly the answer, but hardware could not be the answer. And of course, that's where we get that other important evolution, which is incorporating the microprocessor into the game. With the microprocessor, when you're getting most commands executed in software, rather than having to build very, very complex circuit boards full of transistors and integrated circuits with all of their individual logic gates and all of that, you can have a lot of your program now happening in software. Software can do a lot of your mathematic calculations. It can take the burden off of the hardware, allowing you to shrink the hardware, while at the same time allowing you to have more complex elements. And that's really what was needed to get video games to a sustainable point. You needed the tech to get to microprocessors first. It's important to note that early microprocessor-driven video games, games like Gunfight and Seawolf that were big hits, even though the microprocessor did a lot of the work, processors could not do all of the work. There were still special circuits needed for a lot of what was going on. So to get truly interesting games took a few more years. Gunfight was able to do more than Pong could, but you were still kind of limited in the number of objects you could have on the screen because you needed separate circuitry to drive moving objects, for instance. You still needed separate circuitry to drive sound. Sound chips would come along in games, you know, processors just totally devoted to sound would come along by the early 1980s, but in the mid-1970s, they're not there yet. You sometimes still need separate controllers for some of your control schemes. There's a lot of stuff that's still going on, but microprocessors get us to the point where video games can start to work. You have some games in this period that do get popular. Gunfight's pretty popular. Seawolf, which is a submarine game, is very popular. But even if you look at Seawolf, it's a game that needed a lot of non-video elements to really work really well. If you play Seawolf in MAME today, it looks fairly basic. It has nice ship graphics for the time. You just have your ships and your, I guess they're supposed to be mines, they look like balloons, but your ships and your mines flying by at different speeds, and then you shoot a torpedo and it comes up and it makes contact with one of those things and that thing disappears. Fun, I guess, but it doesn't seem that far removed from Pong in its audiovisual presentation. If you play it in the arcade, there's a lot of elements that are still drawn from the old electromechanical tradition that are part of the game. So you're peering through a periscope, and that periscope has a targeting crosshairs that's superimposed within the periscope itself. So that is a graphical element that you don't see in MAME, is that crosshair moving around as you're trying to target these different ships. There's sonar pings there's sound going off that MAME does not emulate because at this time, sound was still being done completely through hardware. And of course, MAME is software emulation. MAME for some games has mocked up hardware elements from games that aren't done in software, but they haven't done that uniformly across everything. There's a sound element that you don't get just from the microprocessor. There's actually explosions 
that are done using projection technology. So they're bringing in old electromechanical projection technology to make nice big red explosions when you blow something up. And of course, MAME doesn't capture that because that's not even electronic hardware. That's going back to the old electromechanical days. So you've got a period where there's a lot of hybrid stuff going on. You get elaborate backgrounds that are being done either through silk screening directly on the cabinet or by recessing the monitor and then using a mirror to project the image from the monitor over top of something sculpted. This was a real hybrid period, but it's a period where the games, by borrowing from a combination of the new video technology and the old electromechanical technology, are starting to become something more sophisticated and interesting. The one thing that's still missing from that is excitement and unpredictability. It's for this reason that even though video is becoming more sophisticated and some games are becoming more popular, that you're still getting overshadowed at this point by pinball. Video games helped legitimize pinball. It's kind of funny because now that coin-operated entertainment is seen as respectable, which video games played a big part of, pinball is taking on a new life of respectability as well and is becoming legal in places where it had previously been illegal. On top of that, the advances in solid-state technology that are appearing in video games are also appearing in pinball machines and are actually being worked on first in pinball machines even before they're worked on in video games because you can use a 4-bit processor to drive a pinball machine because there's no display. You cannot use a 4-bit processor to drive a video game because a 4-bit processor is quite simply not powerful enough to drive a display under any circumstances. Well, I shouldn't say under any circumstances, but under any realistic and edifying circumstances. Let's put it that way. But what if I wanted to play life on a really, really small screen? Yeah, I mean, obviously, 4-bit processors did drive LED handhelds. So, I mean, you can have a display, but not the type of display that is going to lead to something edifying. Pinball is going solid state at the same time as video is going solid state. And again, we won't get detailed into the history too late, but we'll pretend we're not going detailed into the history. Suffice to say, pinball is going solid state, and solid state pinball really revolutionizes things as well, because pinball had gone competitive in the 1950s. That's the first time that you started seeing two-player pinball machines where you would alternate. One person would play, they'd rack up a score. Until they lost a ball, they'd alternate ball to ball. Uh, This is getting naughty. Then the uh, next player would come in and play their ball, and then their score would be there, and so on and so forth. The game could track two scores, but it was using electromechanical scoring reels to do this. So it could save the state of the scores, but it couldn't save the state of the game. Pinball throughout the 50s and especially the 60s was getting more sophisticated where you're not just hitting a bumper and scoring a point. You're getting to the point where you have elaborate targets. You're getting to the point where you have portions of the board that are worth more points depending on when you hit them. And you have all of these complex timing things that are infiltrating pinball in the 1960s and are integral into making pinball less random chaotic game of stuff bouncing around and more a game of structure and skill where you're trying to get good at using your bumpers to aim your ball to a particular part of the table at a particular time to get a particular amount of points. This is also part of, incidentally, what helps legitimize pinball in the 1970s and takes it away from its gambling roots. 
there is real skill involved at this point, even if there's still a lot of random chance as well. You could keep track of two scores at once. You couldn't remember the state of the board. If player one had an eight times combo going at the end of his ball, when he lost his ball, if he were playing single player, when he got his next ball, he could continue with that eight time combo. If you're alternating, every bit of knowledge about player one is lost by the machine except for his score when you move to player two. With solid state, with microprocessors, you could save the game state of player one and return to it when player two's turn was done. This was a true revolution in the way pinball functioned and the way the gamification of pinball functioned and made for a more compelling product. You also have two other things going on in this period that I think are important. One is you have the movie Pinball Wizard, based, of course, on the Who album from uh, several years prior, that is more closely bringing together several different kinds of teenage pursuits. You're bringing in rock music, which is popular with the kids these days. You're bringing in pinball, which maybe wasn't as popular with the kids, but is becoming popular with the kids. And you're bringing around Anne-Margaret rolling around in baked beans or something. And you couldn't go wrong as a teenager with Anne-Margaret in the 1970s. You're bringing in these teenage elements together. Yes, it's supposed to be Tommy, not Wizards. The game itself. I'm well aware of the difference between Tommy and Pinball Wizard. Good Lord. I blame the blue LEDs in my arm injecting me with LED poison. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) No, no, I, yeah, terribly sorry. That's one of those moments. That's one of those moments. (laughs) Tommy (laughs) is the album. So you have Tommy bringing together all of these elements, and then you have Bally making the decision, thanks to a particular marketing executive, Tom Neiman, to license Tommy to create the wizard machine based on the song Pinball Wizard. A synergy is created between Tommy and Wizard and Anne-Margaret, because they use Anne-Margaret in the promotional materials, which creates a new place for pinball in the imagination of the teenage set. This is happening at the same time that coin-operated games are coming into the shopping mall. So, of course, the shopping mall is becoming a hangout for teens. Also, I think, quite frankly, this is the 1970s. This is the period of hyperinflation. This is the period of time when everyone is getting laid off, unemployment up to 10%, where money is rapidly becoming worthless, where the country is just in kind of a serious economic state. It cannot be a coincidence that pinball suddenly surges in popularity, particularly with teenagers, in this period of hyperinflation bookended by recession. As all of this is going on, coin-operated entertainment is staying at this 25-cent level. Now, pinball is moving to pure 25 cents from 2 to 25 cents. It's able to maintain that quarter price during this entire period. As other forms of entertainment, I'm sure, are suddenly becoming much more expensive, things like records and movies and all of that, you get a flocking, once again, just like you did in the Great Depression, to coin-operated amusements. This is kind of the final twist in bringing coin-op to the state that it would be at the start of the Golden Age. We've come from a working-class 
entertainment primarily found in bars to a teenage entertainment that is more and more becoming centered around the arcade, whether that arcade is in an enclosed shopping mall or is in a strip mall, you're getting that going. Now, at this point, video games haven't really made it into street locations very much yet. Obviously, they were in the bars already, and they kind of got into cocktail lounges. Other street locations like convenience stores are actually kind of sticking with pinball. But pinball is experiencing this massive surge in popularity. The solid state helps. The Tommy connection helps. I do think the recession helps. What I think really sets pinball apart and what helps it in a way that video games are not helped by, say, this hyperinflation environment is that pinball is exciting and unpredictable. You get your three balls or your five balls. You launch it on there. There's lots of action. Never know quite where the ball is going to go. You have to really pay close attention with your flippers to make sure you're batting at the right time and in the right place. And there's a real sense of danger. There's a sense that your game is going to end. Your game could end after five seconds if you really suck. Your game could extend for minute upon minute upon minute if you're particularly good at it. But even if you're good at it, you're still going to get that bad bounce eventually that knocks you out of the running. Video games, in contrast, in this time period are predictable. Predictability leads to boredom. Games are tuned around time limits in almost every case. Driving games in particular, you're driving for 60 minutes or 90 minutes. If you are good enough at your driving and accumulate enough score, which is usually factored by driving progress, then maybe you'll get an extended period. Maybe you get another 30 seconds. Then your game is over. Shooting gallery games, games like Seawolf, which is very popular, 10,000 units, and 10,000 units was a heck of a lot back then. It's timed game. You're shooting at things until the clock runs out and you're getting whatever score you get. Some of the dueling games or the ball and paddle games like Pong, it's to a score. There is some variation and some excitement in how that game's going to play out based on reaching the score, the number of kills first in the case of something like a tank, it's still a set endpoint, And it's still not that unpredictable because most of those games, you have very few objects on the screen at once. So it's not a very chaotic, target-rich environment like a pinball environment is. I think this is why video games go through a lot of ups and downs. They're huge in 73. They crash in 74. That's the Pong boom. They rise in 75 and 76 because games like Gunfight, Wheels, which is the American version of Speed Race, we will get into Japan a little more detail later, and Tank provides something new and exciting that people haven't seen before, Seawolf. That kind of gets to the limit of that style of gameplay. They're limited by the technology. They've got some ROMs in there now for more sophisticated graphics, but they can only go so far. They're limited by the gameplay mechanics that they have. They're timed games, they're scored games. It gets prosaic. As 76 turns to 77, games are kind of more of the same. It's the same kind of thing. In 77 and 78, it kind of gets prosaic again at the exact same moment. Pinball is getting more exciting and getting more attached to youth culture. Video rises big, falls big, rises a little, rises a little more, falls a little, falls a little more. They're still doing okay, but there's a real sense that maybe this isn't something that is going to necessarily last. In the meantime, we do need to turn briefly to the home. 
home games really started when you got large-scale integrated circuits, when you could really get an entire game, simple game like Pong, on a single chip. You had the Magnavox Odyssey. The Magnavox Odyssey was in production from 72 to 75. It did sell over that period of time somewhere north of 300,000 units, which isn't the worst thing in the world. It couldn't be that sophisticated. It couldn't be that fun. It was three dots in a line. There wasn't even a score. It used overlays to do more complex game elements. Those overlays were limited, really, in what they could add. They used cards. They used dice. One game even used a game board. It was a mess. It was a good attempt, but it was too limited by the technology. You needed those integrated circuits, and particularly large-scale integration circuits. Some of the early ones did use medium-scale integration. You needed three or four chips with medium-scale integration. Large-scale integration, you could do it all on one chip. Just to clarify, when I talk about integration like that, that's how many transistors you can fit on a single sliver of silicon. There's definitions. I don't have them in front of me, but I think medium-scale integrations, like up to 500 or something, and large-scale is, is more than that. Those numbers could be completely wrong. It doesn't matter. Once you had the capability to get Pong, a fairly primitive game on a single chip, that spurred an adoption in the home. You know, the Pong fad had kind of run out in the arcade at that point. As much as anything, I think that had to do with the fact that grown men were getting tired of pumping quarters into a machine for very limited gameplay. You're, you're just not getting a lot of bang for your buck. Bringing Pong into the home gets rid of that problem of eating your savings one quarter at a time, but it also allows you to get the whole family involved, theoretically, and get your kids involved with it. There really isn't a good environment for younger kids yet to play games, which is a big part of the reason why bringing in them into the home in this time period is valuable as a way of expanding the audience. Obviously, you're not typically going to be bringing your kids to a beer bar. No judgment, but probably not. Arcades, because of their reputation, are not a place that you're going to be comfortable leaving your kids either. Shopping mall arcades are changing that a little bit. The shopping mall arcade thing is still only growing slowly in the mid-70s. You don't have shopping mall arcades on every street corner yet, like you would a few years later. Bringing Pong into the home gives it a second life, I think as much as anything, because it's something for the children. Think of the children. It's very expensive. You're talking about games that are costing $100 for the Atari model. Once GI, uh, the chip company, is able to commoditize the chips, you're looking at games that are $70. That doesn't sound like much. We have to remember that we all live after that period of hyperinflation that I was alluding to earlier. So we do our favorite thing and go to a handy-dandy inflation calculator. We do? Oh, no. If in 1975 I purchased an item for $99.99... No, just call it 100 No, no, no. $99.99. Then in 2020, I am spending $476.52. The old equivalent of an Xbox or a PlayStation right now. That's right. We talk about how exorbitant the price of something like, say, a PlayStation 3 was at launch. That was one of the ones that really got people rebelling over the price of a video game. Well, you were paying that same amount of money 
to the good folks at Sears to buy an Atari-created, Sears-branded Pong system. All it does is let two people bat a ball back and forth. It does keep score. Ooh. Very fancy for 1975. It has alphanumerics and everything to keep score. And it has a rainbow of color. Home Pong is in color. It's not a real color game. What I mean by that is that they don't define colors for individual things. Al Alcorn was just a very savvy TV engineer going way back. He knew very cheap, cheap in the sense of hardware way to get a color television to just run through the entire spectrum of colors across the screen. Color was was a real gimmick in Home Pong, but it did have color. For a hundred bucks, you got a rainbow of colors, two paddles, a ball, a center line, some decent physics, and a score. That's not exactly getting Uncharted 2. This was expensive, which makes it a tough sell. Even though this was a period of hyperinflation and recession and a somewhat high level of unemployment, high for post-war non-COVID America, I mean, nothing compared to the Great Depression, but relatively high, this was still a period of time when leisure was becoming a bigger part of American life. Again, not a full-blown social historian, so bear with me a little bit, but you'd had the boomer generation, of course, and so you had a large number of children, and then those large number of children became a large number of teenagers, and then a large number of young professionals. You had automobiles and interstate highways and subdivisions changing patterns of behavior. So you kind of had a leisure culture that was growing in the United States that was very different than what you had ever seen before. You had the idea of, if you were someone that was fortunate enough to have a slightly larger house, which was certainly not everybody in the 1970s, because one of the things that the hyperinflation of the 1970s did is basically put homeownership out of the reach of a heck of a lot of people, because you had like 20% interest rates on mortgages. The government tried to combat inflation with ludicrous interest rates. Spoiler alert, it didn't work. If you were lucky enough to have a larger home because you had more kids around, you kind of had the idea of the family rec room or the family rumpus room or the family game room. You had this idea that you were starting to bring expensive items into the home for entertainment. You might get a ping pong table. Table tennis was very big in the 70s after the whole ping pong diplomacy thing and sending our people over to play the uh, the Chinese and, you know, Forrest Gump impressing everybody because that was history, definitely. Table tennis was very popular, so people were getting table tennis. People were getting pool tables for the home. There was this idea that you could bring an expensive item into the home and make it something for family entertainment. Even though home pong was expensive, it was seen as a legitimate extension of this rec room culture that was already becoming a part of American life and American society. This is why home pong, incidentally, first appeared in the sporting goods department at Sears. Not in the toy department, not in the television department. Certainly there wouldn't have been something as broad-based as a consumer electronics department yet because TVs and radios were basically the entire sum of consumer electronics. But it appeared in the sporting goods department because the sporting goods in the winter, they were really supplementing a lot of their bats and balls and whatever else you would find there normally 
with items that were considered vaguely sporty that were being brought into the home. So it became a ping pong and pool table business in large part alongside indoor sports equipment like basketballs in the winter. Tom Quinn, a very visionary buyer at Sears, saw the Magnavox Odyssey, the original Odyssey, which had representations of sports like table tennis, tennis, and hockey, and said, okay, this is something that you can fit in the family activity room. This is something you can put next to the ping pong table and is something that has a vaguely sports-like connotation similar to a ping pong or pool table. Let's sell the Odyssey. We didn't talk about this, but one of the limiters of the spread of the Odyssey was, of course, that they limited the Odyssey to Magnavox dealers, organizations that specifically dealt in Magnavox products and only Magnavox products. Management had gotten a little more progressive by the mid-1970s, I think in part because the company was in pretty dire straits financially. I'm sure in part it very well could have been that they were bought by the Dutch and Phillips might have looked at that dealer restriction stuff and thought it was stupid. I have no idea if that's true. I wish we had more information on Phillips and its relationship with video games. Our Dutch folk need to get on that. You're out there. We know you're out there. We talk to you. Some of you may even be in this chat right Uh now. Get on that. (laughs) But for whatever reason, they were starting to loosen that by 1974. So they still weren't going to allow Sears to sell it in store, but they were going to allow them to put it in the Sears catalog, which they did. It appears in the catalog in 74. Quinn's looking for product at the same time Atari is looking for buyers, and they can't get anyone interested because it's such a strange fit. It's considered a toy in the home because it's for recreation. The toy industry does not deal in $100 products. They just don't. If it's over $30, it's a bicycle. Some bigger toy stores sell bikes, and those may be more than $30, and that's it. Otherwise, toy buyers are cutting off at $30. They're not comfortable in dealing with stuff higher than that. Consumer electronics isn't really a thing yet. It's just TVs and radios. Even though there's a logical synergy between television and and video games, the TV companies in general aren't very interested in it. They actually tried the Sears television department first, and they weren't interested. Magnavox had tried interesting Sears back in the day. Back then, they weren't interested because they didn't want the television department to become a babysitter because you set up a demo unit and then the kids stay in the television department all day and they're being all rambunctious and then the adults don't come in and buy televisions. Nobody was interested, but sporting goods was interested because of this whole rec room, winter, indoor activity, rise in leisure connotation. It comes into the sporting goods department and department store. At this time, it has to be a department store item because it's so expensive. You're not going to get $100 toy, $500 in today's money into Kmart. It's a department store item. It comes through Sears, and video games have enough of a cachet now that it sells. It sells really well. It lifts uh, all boats. Home Pong is not the best seller. The Magnavox new system is actually the new seller. They take the Odyssey. They put it on some MSI chips, three to four of them, depending on the system. They scale down to just the ball and paddle games because they're not blind. They saw what sold in the arcade. It wasn't Simon Says or Haunted House. They slim down to the ball and paddle product. They actually sell more than Atari because they have a greater manufacturing capability. Some novelty companies also get in because there's also been a move at the same time, just like pool tables are coming into the home and ping pongs come into the home. Air hockey, which was brand new at about the same time Pong was, 
is coming into the home. You have novelty companies that are making miniature pool tables and air hockey tables, and they get into the home pong business. You get a pong business going, but you get into the same challenges that you had in the arcade. Pong is a very limited thing, and you get a rapid boom of the product and a rapid tiring of the product. So once Atari and Magnavox get in, it takes specialists to get in and invent the stuff in the first place. Once the specialists get in, you get a chip company, like, say, General Instrument, just developing an entire game on a single chip where all you have to provide is casing and controls and other little peripheral stuff. You make that chip available cheaply, then suddenly everybody can get in. And there's already a consumer electronics business that's in a nascent form at this time. I mentioned that it's mostly televisions and radios, and that's true. But the calculator industry and the handheld calculator industry is just starting to get big, starting in 1971-1972. This brings in a lot of companies, because again, you have chip companies that are making the calculators on a chip, and then you get a variety of other companies that are taking advantage of this to do their own thing. There are two main types of companies that are doing this, and it's all based in the Far East. The Far East is already becoming known as a place where you can do manufacturing cheaper. It's becoming a place where you're having just enough expertise with electronics now, where they've recovered enough from the war that they are starting to get technologically sophisticated. They always lag behind the United States in terms of inventing new things, but the Japanese recognize very early on that their capacity for efficiency and manufacturing efficiency, which is really great, is a perfect match for the semiconductor industry. Japanese electronics corporations and Japanese engineers and Japanese scientists almost take transistors and semiconductors more seriously than the the Americans do. Uh, There are stories about how early pioneers like Bob Noyce, one of the inventors of the integrated circuit, would go to conferences in the United States to talk about ICs and transistors, and maybe the room would be half full. When Noyce would go to Japan, he would play to packed houses because the Japanese were paying attention. They saw how they could take this really finicky technology and use their penchant for efficiency and miniaturization and manufacturing capability to really make a big difference. This is a lot of why you start seeing this kind of activity move towards the Far East, both that efficiency and that cheapness. Of course, that cheapness keeps migrating. What's cheap in Japan then becomes cheap in Taiwan, becomes cheap in Hong Kong. It's it's a cycle. Now it's cheap in, you know, Thailand or whatever. It's kind of that whole Asian migration thing starting, and Japan is a big part of that in the early days. Hong Kong is also a big part of it in the early days. You have both Japanese companies like Busycom and Casio and Sharp that are creating product cheaply. And then you have importers. You have Americans, often Jews, only because there's a lot of Far Eastern connection that has to do with migration of Russian Jews during the revolution to the Far East and then Japanese conquest and all of this stuff. There's actually a lot of Jewish connection with the Far East. So you have a lot of Jewish American entrepreneurs, largely based in New York, who have a lot of contacts 
with Japan and with the Far East, they are creating import companies where they will go to Hong Kong more so than Japan, have a local manufacturer manufacture something that they can bring over under their brand name. You have this huge consumer electronics apparatus who are creating this new calculator industry. They are flooding the market with product. Also, because of this calculator industry and the shift to the Far East, you have companies in Japan, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, becoming more comfortable with the underlying technology. It's starting to get to the point where the American companies are afraid that they've given away, in a sense, too many of their secrets to the Japanese. Right now, all the Japanese and the Hong Kong folk are doing is creating the shell and the casing around these systems. There's a very real fear that because of the expertise they're getting through this exchange of technology, that they're going to start creating the underlying chips as well. This really scares companies like Texas Instruments, which at this time have a monopoly on this kind of stuff going on with them. What you get as a result of that is you get the unprecedented move of Texas Instrument deciding that they will not only create the integrated circuits, they will also create the consumer electronics themselves, which before had never really been the case. Texas Instrument enters the market with its own calculator. The other big companies like National Semiconductor are required essentially to follow suit to keep up. These companies can undercut the other companies on price because they can buy the chips from themselves at cost. It leads to a ruinous price war that destroys the calculator industry. You're talking about in a period of three years, you had handheld calculators going from like a $50, $60, $70 item to $9.95. It was an insane crash in price. It destroyed profitability for almost everybody. This creates two paradigm shifts. On the one hand, it means that the chip companies are permanently linked with now being consumer electronics companies as well. This will come back to haunt us at various times. The other paradigm shift is you have all of these companies, whether they be the Japanese OEM people or the Hong Kong OEM people or the New York-based importers like Unisonic and APF and UmTech and also, actually, I think UmTech's one of the Hong Kong companies. It's hard to keep everybody <laughs> straight. All of these companies are suddenly at a loss for product. They need something new. So that general instrument video game chip comes out in a period of time when that industry is scrambling for something. That's why suddenly the market is flooded by video games from dozens upon dozens of companies. You needed Magnavox and Atari to lead the way. Then everybody else gets involved. This leads to the same problem that happened in calculators. You immediately get the market hollowing out. So 1976 is a huge year. 1977, the middle is destroyed because 76, there was overproduction. It was still a good year, but because there was overproduction, there was price cutting at the beginning of 1977. Price cutting really hurts the industry through the rest of 77. There's a hollowing out of the middle where really cheap systems do well. High-end systems, at this point programmable systems that we'll talk about later that are coming in do well. Mid-range systems fall apart completely. Then you have companies stuck with a lot of inventory. You have another round of price cutting. 
This has consequences even into 1978 because 1977 was so disastrous that in 1978 companies become conservative. They decide they're going to order less products. So even the video game product that is still selling okay, they're not going to order as much of. It creates a lot of problems, but it is the beginning of the video game in the home being part of the public consciousness. At the same time, though, this creates a conundrum for the toy companies. Toy companies are still not comfortable with this idea of an $100 product. A general instrument video game can sell for cheaper, can sell for $70. Even that is pretty bad price point for a toy company. The toy companies understand that this electronic stuff is going to steal consumers away from traditional toys because the home games are seen more as a toy, whereas the arcade games are clustered around the teenage culture, sometimes pulling people a little older even than teenagers. The home product is seen as a toy. Adults go out to have fun. Kids stare at the television all day to have fun or something like that. I thought they went outside and played baseball and swam in rivers and played jacks. Yes, jacks. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny that Fairchild or Atari in the early days didn't create a jacks game when they were creating stupid versions of so many other stupid games. Surprised they never created a jacks game. It was a popular game back then, so I'm surprised they didn't. <laughs> yes. TV is much safer. TV won't hurt you. TV is your friend. TV won't try to drown you. But I need that water for drinking. <laughs> There's not much of it left. I'm almost out. I have a cat that's keeping me here. It won't let me escape. You did have one toy company in Coleco that was very bold and decided they could sell a $70 product. And that was important to video games because Coleco being a toy company getting involved made toy buyers get a little more comfortable in this. So we're talking about, on the business side of things, trying to spread the retail distribution and get out of weird areas like sporting goods. It'll persist in things like sporting goods. Coleco getting in helps legitimize it with toy buyers as well at stores. For the majority of the industry, it's just not comfortable to get into that. Which is why you see the subsequent rise of the electronic LED handheld game, which starts at Mattel but then spreads to other companies like Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley. Electronics start taking over the toy industry more broadly. You have the low end getting overrun by this. Even though you have prices of video games falling, Video games aren't a good fit for the low end of the market because the handhelds are coming in at the low end of the market. At the high end of the market, you have the programmables. The programmables are having trouble kind of proving themselves in this time period. You get the market kind of hollowing out where the sophisticated, for the time, video games in the middle in your $50 to $100 price range just aren't making it anymore. Just at the same time that you have the arcade, the coin-op industry kind of falling apart a little bit, you have the home industry, which is a separate industry. It's tempting to label a complete video game industry. This separate home industry is also falling apart. It's not altogether clear that video games won't just be a fad that are replaced by something else that is more interesting or more sustainable long-term, because at this time, video games are very limited and quite simply, in some ways, very boring. That's what kind of takes us to the end of this first chunk. 
that's how you get to a point, both in terms of the technology, in terms of society, in terms of interest, where the video game may have really been in trouble if not for the arrival of Space Invaders. That brings us into what is going to be our part two. We will continue to cover the entire video game industry next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 